please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Good morning and welcome. It's Wednesday, the 28th of October, 2020, and it's Nordia's Morning Espresso. Now then, uh, before we get going, if you're watching this live, you can, of course, uh, click on the button below and you have different language options. You'll get simultaneous translations as the conversation goes along. We also have a Q&A button there as well, but you can always email us nordiafunds at nordia.com and we will get back to you with uh, our answers. Today we won't have a macro session. What we will be doing is talking ESG and for that I have uh, a head of uh, ESG products and research, Michaela Zirova. Good morning Michaela. Good morning Paul. Hi. Hi. So last month um, marked the fifth anniversary of the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs as, as we call them, and we see that everywhere. Now, I thought because they're becoming more and more popular, it might be a good idea if you could just quickly give us an overview of the SDGs um, and also what they're used for. Absolutely. So the SDGs are a framework for global sustainable development. That doesn't sound very exciting, but there are very, very good reasons why we are nonetheless getting very much excited about the framework. Uh, the Sustainable Development Goals were adopted in 2015 um, from the, by the United Nations as part of uh, a sustainable development agenda called Agenda 2030. And this was the result of decades of work and research that led more or less all nations to agree on what are the priorities for sustainable development and what should be, we be focusing on in order to create, uh, well, I would have said sustainable future, but let's say a better or a more livable future for everyone. Okay. This is the idea. Uh, all of this is actually quite broad. You have these 17 areas. They cover roughly, I like to separate them in three categories. You have goals that are more socially oriented, like no poverty, zero ha uh, hunger, good health and well-being and education, also gender equality. Uh, then you have goals that are more uh, oriented towards the environmental aspect, uh, affordability of clean energy, for example, climate action, very important, life below water and on land. And then you have goals that are more institutional, focused on uh, innovation and focused on infrastructure, also on economic uh, growth. And these three categories of targets or broad goals are supposed to help everybody focus their efforts in the right direction. So the addressees are both societies and countries, but also investors and companies. Exactly. So it's not specific to financial markets and investors, but perhaps you can tell our audience today why it is important for investors and, and what role these SDGs play. Sure. And actually, that's a not as easy a question as it might seem. Of course, we all want to contribute to sustainable development and we also want to show our clients how we are doing that. But investors, as I mentioned, are perhaps not the primary addressee of the goals. 
Still, nonetheless, uh, it is very, very important to center our efforts in sustainable investment towards those goals. First, because it's very, very important to be in line with the efforts of the rest of society. Broad though the framework is, it still provides a direction and we use it, for example, very much when we analyze business models. One of the key things that we look in in the STARS process is how well is the business model of the companies we're looking at aligned with the sustainable development goals. And this framework lets us at a high level know is our investment contributing to the right things or are we completely missing the mark? So for investors, this is, the goals provide uh, a guidance and an accepted common ground. What do we mean when we say something is sustainable? So, so you, you're talking about, you know, using it on the investment side and, and having that as part, an integrated part of the analysis that you do when you're selecting companies for the various portfolios that we have in the stars range, which is of course our ESG range. Um, presumably we can also report on that and, and show how we, you know, our portfolio is doing versus its respective benchmark. And I think you have a slide on that as well. Sure, it's uh, actually something that our colleagues in Luxembourg have produced and it's a very useful thing and very popular with clients. So here you can see how do our portfolios compare in terms of alignment to the sustainable development goals versus the benchmark. And this comparison, uh, I want to be very clear here, it's a broad comparison, but it's nonetheless very important for us because if even on this broad guidelines, we are not better than the benchmark, then we have to ask ourselves some very serious questions. <laughs> uh, so, so this is something that we absolutely do keep a, an eye on and need to keep an eye on because uh, that's uh, the first measure of a sustainable portfolio when it uh, comes to these uh, very very broad uh, targets do we ma may do we manage to be more strongly aligned than uh, basically a broad benchmark of not not particularly not necessarily sustainable companies uh, another thing that is useful it is possible uh, within this reporting to prioritize uh, what we're looking at and it is also possible to identify which are the main sustainable development goals to which the portfolio is exposed. And this uh, uh, can then be a, quite a good starting point for a client that wants to conceptualize the main impacts of a particular investment. So when it comes to reporting on the SDGs, uh, the challenge is that we don't have a universally accepted methodology. Uh, so this uh, kind of limits how far into the detail we can go and it also to some extent limits the comparability of our reporting versus what everyone else might be putting out there. Uh, however, on the positive side, it does have the advantage that it gives us uh, a guide of, as to how we are doing and it also can give us a, a, a time series we can compare how have we developed in terms of alignment from one a reporting period to another, which is also a good bit of information to have. We're constantly looking at ways, how can we make this more granular? And there are actually some very interesting solutions coming up. We are working with a few research providers to see if they can help us report in more detail on the SDGs, because right now what we can say is, all right, uh, this investment is touching on these and these, these SDGs, and we can say to which degree, we can say whether that's uh, 
limited or whether it's a high level. So you can see that's all pretty rough. Our next ambition is to make this more granular and to maybe also pay a little bit of attention to the specific targets behind the SDGs. Uh, in 2017, interestingly on my birthday, on the 6th of July, uh, the UN decided to make the SDGs more actionable and also released a set of targets, which basically behind each SDG describe what are the specific things that should be happening. And this is the next uh, part of the issue that we're looking at, and we're trying to find ways to make it work both for our reporting and for our business model analysis. Great framework. Right because it's uh, our common ground and common understanding of what is sustainable. And we still, however, have a lot of work to do to make it specific, actionable and comparable across portfolios. And obviously we also want to compare with our competitors and come out better. So hopefully <laughs> that's the thing that will happen next. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that, Mikaela. What we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be doing more of these sessions on uh, ESG and responsible investing every other week. So uh, I'm sure we'll be speaking again soon, but thank you very much for your time. Uh, we're gonna move on now to the main section of today's discussion, and that's around the EU regulation. Uh, when we talk about regulation, that means that uh, we have two guests um, for the third time, actually. Uh, first of all, we have uh, Michael Mordener, who is the Managing Director of the Manco Nordea Investment Funds. Hello, Michael, good morning. Good morning, Paul. Hi. And we also have Cecilia Siegbahn, who is our regulatory expert, and she is responsible for the internal ESG regulation project. So good morning, Cecilia. Good morning, Paul. Hi. So as I mentioned, this is our third session um, on ESG and sustainable related regulation. And the reason we're talking about this is, is obviously for the, the impact that it's having on distribution. Um, and after the previous sessions that we've run, it's become clear that there's interest um, to hear more about, you know, what the impact will have uh, specifically for advisors, you know, who are talking to the end client. So first of all, thank you to everyone uh, for your feedback. That's always welcome. Um, what we would thought we would do today is we would focus on MIFID 2 um, and how that is going to set the scene basically for um, ESG profiling uh, in the future. Now, before we do that, uh, I do have a disclaimer, um, and that is that the content today um, is not advice. Okay, so it's not, we're not a regulatory consultant. Um, what we're trying to do is give you our house view, um, our current understanding of the general direction that things are moving in and and how regulatory developments, you know, the, the path they might take. So um, that's very important to mention. Good. Now, before we dive into the world of MIFID 2, I was wondering if you, Cecilia, could um, tell us if there's been any developments basically on the on the major sort of regulatory files since we spoke uh, a few months ago. Well, there hasn't been any official publications from EU, so I can't really provide you with many more concrete details and information. <laughs> but there actually has been some uh, some developments in general that I can give you a okay. small intro on. But before looking at them, I was just wondering if we can have a look at the regulations in general, because since last time we tried to be a bit more visualizing and try to create this, we call it the tree of regulations. Uh -huh. uh, we will highlight the 
main areas that would be relevant for the asset management sector. Mm -hmm. So if we start by looking at the regulatory truncate in the middle, like I said, there hasn't been any official publications, but still some, some developments worth mentioning. And firstly, we have the fact that the EU European supervisory authorities, they published the templates that they are suggesting for the pre-contractual disclosure and the periodic reports according to the level two of the disclosure regulation. Mm -hmm. And I think we mentioned it last time, but we see some challenges with the drafted level two text in itself, but yep. these templates were, they were well aligned, so I have no general comments on it. Mm -hmm. The second point, and this point might actually be due to the challenges that I really just referred to, but earlier this month, it was announced that the level two will be delayed as a whole. Mm -hmm. So we don't have any information on where we will get it, but I would still say that the firms, they are well advised to continue to look into the level two drafts because we still need to do some preparations and comply with the level one requirements. And I know it's true that to say that the level one, they are in general more, they're more general, they are on a high level and some might say it's easier to comply with but at the same time, you know, we don't know which aspects of the level two that will change and which ones that would actually stay in, in the way it's drafted today. Mm -hmm. So I would still continue looking at those. But to sum up the overall regulatory uh, developments, you can see from our sl old slide now shown on the screen that uh, the main, main challenges are still ahead of us. So, uh, so here we have our, our timeline. We showed this last time, I think, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you you mentioned there that that level two is going to be postponed. What does that actually mean? That that is a good question for us. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Better than the first one. <laughs> well done. Thank you. Uh, but if we look at the level one, and that is the disclosure regulation. So as an example, it states in Article 8 that we as the financial market participants, we need to dis disclose how environmental and or social characteristics are met. And you can imagine if we only got this sentence as our sole requirement, uh, I believe at least that we would probably have as many uh, versions on how to disclose it as we have market participants in the EU. And therefore, we actually need these level two requirements because they provide us with, with the details on how we should interpret and apply level one in the first place. So again, level two is postponed, but we still need to look at the level one by 10th of March, 2021. Okay, so March 21 is gonna be important time. Let's now move on to, to MIFID, um, which was the main theme of today's session. And when we spoke last time, you mentioned that uh, MIFID 2 will uh, be amended, um, that distributors will have to include uh, sustainability preferences um, when they're doing their suitability assessment with their clients. So have there been any updates or any discussions in the market around this topic? Yes, I mean, <laughs> once again, nothing official, but in this case, I would say that end of September, the commissions, their current wording suggesting how to, 
how to define the sustainability preference within the MIFI II, uh, their draft was leaked. And believe it or not, this was yeah. quickly spread in the financial industry. <laughs> surprise. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And, and then again, I don't want to give this too much weight since it is a leaked draft and we don't know, we don't know anything about the background and reasoning of the suggestion and how accurate it actually is. But still, I would like to, to summarize it. You can say that the commission is now proposing two types of Article 8 products which also is referred to the light green products in some instances, but these two types that could cater for the investor's uh, sustainability preference. And that would be firstly products that consider the principal adverse impact on the decision-making or, and this is then the new part, which is the products that has a minimum proportion of sustainable investments and it would be up to the client to determine this minimum proportion. Mm -hmm. So as you can hear here, probably now we're also becoming the expert on the different regulations. Yes, yeah, getting there. <laughs> <laughs> this draft suggests some even further misalignment between the product classification as we have it in the disclosure regulation, and then the products that can be sold to clients with sustainability preferences according to MIFID II. And I can say that there is a risk that this discrepancy, it could actually create more of a confusion in the market and maybe even be counterproductive to the, to the purpose of actually steering more investments towards sustainability. So you mentioned this leaked draft and uh, I, I guess they could be just testing the market, couldn't they? I mean, that, that might be a, a deliberate leak. But anyway, um, let's not, uh, stay stick with that but um what does it actually mean in practice let's just imagine that the leak is true and and that's what happens what would what would that in effect mean i mean in general it's very hard to predict what it would mean but i think we can draw some conclusions of it and the first one as you mentioned it is leaked and one conspiratorial side of me might question if it was done by purpose to actually <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> test our reaction and appetite for for having this type of products in the categorization but yeah. secondly which is the bit more importantly is that if we're not able to sell a straight article 8 product as it's defined in sfdr as an esg or light green product under mifid 2 this would pose some significant challenges to the distribution. It would mean that the distributors, the product assessment and selection process, that would even go beyond what the asset managers are required to disclose. So I can imagine that if it kept, this would be an area we would sort of separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of data and content deliveries to the distributors. Mm -hmm. But then again, also remember that the other version with the principal adverse impact considerations, that is also very much in the air because that is defining the level two. We also don't have enough adequate data in the market at the moment. But my last point here, the point, the fact that it would be up to the, the end investor to determine this minimum proportion of sustainable investments it is creating some practical challenges for the distribution, mm. but also for the asset managers and product providers. So 
what can I say, yet an, another layer of uh, complexity in general. And maybe if I could chip in here quickly, and I guess this is actually, to my opinion, at least where it would get the most tricky, not only for the distributors, as, as you elaborated on, Cecilia, but certainly also for us as, as managers, because we as an industry, we, we are still lacking these fundamental infrastructures when it comes to data availability, as well as data delivery. So, and um, as you said, we know too little. We can speculate, but we know too little about reasoning of the the leaked draft, uh, and thus we shall certainly wait for the formal drafts to come when it actually goes into public consultation. Nonetheless, the trend is, to my opinion, however, clear, meaning that uh, the question is rather now, what will be required and doable now and over time? So it's a kind of evolution or transformation that we are part of and that we have ahead of us, then actually something that is already carved in stone today. So one thing I've, I've learned through this process is that everything, there's a lot of moving parts here and, and everything seems to be in a state of flux. But can you maybe be a bit more specific in terms of what you think the tangible impact uh, will be in, in, in terms of this particular point here? Yeah, but as I see it, I know as an end investor myself, I must say that I think that the suggestion of the fact that I can determine the proportion of sustainable investments in the products that is suitable for me. I think it makes sense. Mm. And in all honesty, I think this is probably how the future will look in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. But however, I mean, if this suggestion will be adopted as a first steps, I would say we can see quite a few risks popping up in the market. Mm -hmm. And just the fact that the advisor wouldn't have enough necessary information at this early stage mm. it's probably not even in the best interest for me as a client either mm. but as you can tell i can talk about this all day so let's take uh, more details on this at later stage if we need it yeah and, and maybe let's try putting this a bit into perspective but stressing again that a lot is being debated right now behind closed doors so uh difficult to predict everything but what is already clear is that much will depend on the internal decisions distributors, banks and the like will take now on how they want to position themselves. Uh, because one thing is clear, it is paramount to be flexible at the end. Uh, given the waves of regulations and clarifications coming in and expected to come in actually over the next few years, mm -hmm. it is, to my opinion, personal opinion, uh, extremely unlikely that the strategy or approach that you take or decide upon right now uh, will remain unchanged throughout the years to come. Uh, so for us, it's not only about ensuring you as our distributors and clients that we have today, but also will have in the future, the, because of the right products. And Paul, you mentioned last time that we have the broad range when it comes to our ESG stars products. Mm -hmm. We have our climate fund, we have our journal diversity fund, just to name a mm -hmm. few examples. Mm -hmm. But it's also to be well aware that we will actively drive the evolution of the topic in the years to come. And that is regardless of the different regulatory nuances that we will see. So rest assured, we will be there for you and by your side. That's a super important point that you've just mentioned there. You know, it's important for our, our audience um, to be reassured in terms of, of our offering, of course, as well, both ESG, you know, the stars range, but also the, the thematic funds that you just mentioned on, the, uh, on, on there. Um, what 
do you think our distribution distributors beg your pardon um should be prepared for um what are the points um to be considered what you know how do they need to get ready for the future here well let's start probably off with the regular tree again because i very much uh, like this illustration. I mean, we have the roots, we have the trunk, we have the leaves and the branches, and the mifid requirements are somewhat an essential element of the trunk. And so it's an enabler of the other themes and topics that you see uh, all over the tree. So if we try to unfold that part of the trunk, we get to see uh, seven main topics, to my opinion, uh, mm -hmm. that could be seen uh, as essential for such a strong tree that we want to build and our distributors want to build as well. So if we go into the first leaf, the first leaf is certainly sustainability risk. The question is, and that is actually uh, that we are all facing, is how do we integrate sustainability risk into our governance framework? And as such, uh, firms should actually consider thinking of, uh, about what are the policies and procedures needed? How do you anchor sustainability risk in, um, in there across your entire organization, across your value chain? How will you manage these risks? And have you thought about adjusting existing KPIs or establishing new KPIs. Uh, how will you actually do that? How will you formalize? And it's also important here to note that uh, the anchoring of the decision-making and the responsibility is to be clearly documented. And that is a, an explicit requirement because it's also meant to make sure that potential conflicts of interest that we could be facing are adequately treated. So sustainability risk is uh, an important factor. So, so you said there were seven, so that's the first one. What's the second one then? The second one is actually this is a suitability assessment and the integration of sustainability preference in there. I mean, we talked about this in more or less every session, so I will not spend yeah. too much <laughs> more uh, on this one, okay. uh, at least not till we will have uh, the final requirements one day again. But one thing is clear, and that is being that it will be an integral part and that the check-in on investor sustainability preference will be uh, or will have to, to become at the end uh, a part of every suitability assessment. So let me try to put this maybe in other words to, 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 to give it a bit of a different flavor. There's going forward one topic only that will always come on the table in each and every advisory session, and that is about investor sustainability intentions. So regardless of of the asset class you're discussing with your client, the geographical reach of a product, whether it's a conservative or an aggressive product or whatever else we could come to think of right now in terms of product features, sustainability will be discussed in every advice distributors are going to give going forward. So it's definitely worth taking it very serious and have the right competences ensured so that actually client advisors can also ensure a great client experience. Yeah, so, so we've got the sustainability risk, the suitability assessment. And again, this is fairly open at the moment. We need to see how this evolves. What comes next? Well, the next two ones, actually, I would like to take uh, okay. together. That is uh -huh. target market and product classification. Yeah. Uh, because why do I want to take them together is because to my opinion, they go very, very well hand in hand in practice at the end. So as part of the target market, we know the concept from if 2 already, asset managers will provide their inner product classification in terms of what is an Article 8 product, what is an Article 9 product, or what is another product. However, same as with the rest of the target market, distributors should not blindly just follow uh, what they are provided by asset managers, but they need to have their own view uh, or own methodology uh, as to how to classify the products. 
obviously we have the complexity with MIFID SFDR mismatch, as Cecilia pointed out. Uh, but this kind of complexity uh, does not only come on top right now, but I'm pretty convinced actually and almost certain that this will be resolved over time. So not too much to worry about right now, but something that uh, I need to be kept an eye on. Okay, so, so target market product classification, they're sort of bundled together. Uh, what comes next? The next one is actually one that probably uh, I need to spend a few more words on because it's okay. uh, the, the product offering in general. So it's the mm -hmm. product assessment, the selection, and then how do I define my offering uh, at the end? I mean, we acknowledge the aforementioned complexity, no doubt about that. But uh, first, you might want nonetheless have a look at, if not started yet, uh, at what are the processes that uh, I have to put in place in terms of identifying the right products, i.e. having a screening process, do I need to have uh, independent data providers, do I have the governance right, etc., in order to have procedures to assess them at the end. So what do I expect from products and how do I want to sell and market them? For example, you could ask yourself the question, will I give clients a pick and choose list depending on their degree of sustainability preference or will I set up any other logic? I mean, these are fundamental questions that firms should ask themselves in order to be prepared for the time MIFID requirements are kicking in. Uh, on top, people need to remember that this is not a one-off exercise. Uh, MIFID is actually, or the suggested changes to MIFID, are actually requesting a regular review process by the firm. This means that the more robust process in terms of product selection and offering is at the beginning, the easier it will be most probably to basically review the process and review the offering over time. The question is obviously uh, how regular uh, will that be? I would assume at least that it will be at least annual, but obviously distributors and banks, they are uh, free to do it more frequent, but at least I need to have a robust process so that I know what I have to do when basically it's time for review. Uh, one important point, however, to be considered in setting the process is also to be realistic. Uh, given the struggle of classification methodologies, uh, we talked a lot about, it is not really likely to see a lot of Article 9 products right from the start of the regulatory implementation. This is something that will evolve over time with strengthening data availability, but also data accuracy mainly. Also, as we saw, Article 8 might not mean necessarily that it's compatible with sustainability preferences. Again, that is uh, the mismatch between the disclosure regulation and MIFID. So since there's not for now and probably only over the next few years, a standard developed that prevails in the market, awareness of the fact that one has to adjust, again, coming back to my point on flexibility, that one has to adjust uh, the approach along the way can be a relevant reflection point. Okay, so the product offering sounds like that's the, the meat of the sandwich to me at the moment. Um, we've got two more points. Uh, so we're on five of seven. What's, what's next? Then next one is uh, quickly the product uh, documentation and disclosure requirements. Also, a lot was said about that. Mm -hmm. uh, I do not uh, want to spend more time on that, but just reminding people that it is important that, especially when advising retail investors, the sustainability preference, they have to be documented in the suitability report. And it's also when you have strong processes and strong uh, setups, then it's also much easier to prove at the end in the reports that you have been advising the client in accordance with uh, his or her preferences. And then when we go forward, coming quickly to the last one, it's the last one on the mm -hmm. list, but it's certainly also 
one that uh, is extremely important, at least in my opinion, uh, and that is actually education and training or upskilling as it's uh, sometimes referred to. Because why yeah. is it important? Only if an organization knows the concept, the requirements, and as well the firm's approach or view to ESG in general, all parts of the value chain can act together. That's at least my conviction. Uh, this maybe starts in back office where people need to load data and actually assess data and goes all the way over to the client advisors, salespeople or relationship managers. And especially for the latter ones, it is super important to get a complete view since they will at the end determine a large part of the client experience. Yeah. So that's basically and, and in a nutshell. Yeah. I just wanted to add there that, you know, in order to facilitate this for our distribution partners, uh, what we've done is we've actually created a sort of dedicated um, Nordea e-learning tool. Um, so that's available in eight different languages. Um, and what we did is, well, actually we rolled this out at the end of 2018. Um, so we're already on version two, and I think a version three is, is coming soon. Um, we've seen an amazing uptake on that. So that that's great, um, maybe partly because it's free. But anyway, uh, that aside, the uh, the idea is to support the, this upskilling that you that you just mentioned there. Um, ESG is obviously a new skill set set for for many of people. Um, lots of new terminology uh, involved in that, and and also concepts that aren't always necessarily that clearly defined. Um, so what we tried to do is is really pin it all down um, and provide this information as a, as an online resource. So. If that's something of interest, um, then please do contact your, your account manager and we will uh, arrange a, a login for you because I think that's a, a useful tool. Great. Uh, well, thank you very much, Cecilia and Michael. Uh, we're getting to the end of today's session now. So just to recap, um, we have a slightly different summary slide than we would usually have. Um, and I think Michael will have a few words about that in a moment. But uh, let's just quickly go through the, the key points um, for today. So first of all, we need to be aware that um, <laughs> things are evolving quite quickly now. Um, obviously, the deadlines are getting tighter and tighter. And as we get closer to those deadlines, we'll see more and more things um, get pinned down and, and uh, become firm, firm up, basically. Secondly, uh, sustainability preferences, uh, that link to product classification is going to be essential uh, under MIFID 2. Then uh, the next one is the, that, you know, we're still waiting for this final clarity, um, but, you know, the reason we're running these, these sessions is it's starting to, to become clearer which direction we're going now. Um, and again, the core thing are these seven buckets that, that we've just spent a bit of time on uh, there. And the last point for today is contact us. Uh, we're here, we're a resource, we're here for you. Uh, we will do our best to, to help you and guide you. The e-learning tool is part of that. Um, but if there are any other areas you'd like to discuss, then please do um, drop us a line. So Michael, Tell us, what it, why have we got an old fear on this slide? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, Paul, actually, it's my little chinchilla. It's an ah. old Fiat 500 that okay. uh, was built in 1973, actually. And first of all, I need to say big time thanks to our marketing guys having put it in a much uh, more neutral background, I would say, since uh, it was just uh, recently used as a wedding car where the photo was taken. Ah. Uh, anyway, when I bought it a few years ago, the plan was actually that it was kind of 
uh, bought for the family, for tourists in our area from time to time on Sundays to go and buy some ice cream or do something like that. But what happened is that actually that uh, my daughter kind of fell immediately in love with the car. And since then, she actually takes everything that is um, related to the car very serious. Uh, she also knows that once turning 18 and having ideally the driver's license, yeah. she'll get it. So uh, there is also an incentive for her, even though uh, by then we might have to even have equipped it with an electric engine, but who knows? <laughs> but why did I want to use this photo? It's basically to illustrate perhaps in a completely different way uh, what is uh, this regulatory tsunami and the complexity. And what does it nevertheless mean? It means that we got to take action as a financial industry and we got to do it seriously. We are responsible for enabling the steering of assets into what will make our planet at the end sustain and also repair maybe some of the damages we have already caused over the years and centuries. Only if we achieve this, we have hopefully something to be proud of and at the end hand over to the generations following us, being our children, being our grandchildren and so on. Or in other words, despite the complexity, um, our industry should probably never forget about the purpose of the regulations and the demands. So looking at the simple logic only, I thought it's not so much different uh, to, uh, for example, maintaining an old fiat till you really can hand it over to your child, make sure that it's actually in a proper state so that it's something that you can proud of when handing over. Well, it certainly looks in a good state to me. <laughs> looks amazing. Excellent. Well, thank you again to, to both of you. Um, next week, we will have Torben Fredriksen, who is uh, the manager of our European High Yield Stars strategy. Uh, remember, Stars is, is ESG at Nordea. So, um, so we'll be discussing market developments in European high yield space, um, but also how his team integrate ESG uh, into that portfolio. In the meantime, don't forget to visit uh, our Stay Alert microsite at nordea.lu and there you'll find um, all past interviews, podcasts uh, and Q&As as well. That's it for this week. I'll see you in November.